You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you, Lord, for guiding us this morning. Even getting us here is by your grace and your mercy. And so we ask now, um, even as we look into this idea of living by grace and what it means to grow in grace uh, during this life, we ask, Lord, that you would humble us now, that you would prepare our hearts and ears to hear from you and your holy word. Take my words, Lord, and let them be for us your word of encouragement, pointing to the truth of your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so this is part two of four, but they hopefully will all stand alone. (laughs) Um, So if you weren't here last week or if you didn't get a chance to listen in, um, I'm just going to summarize in two minutes what we talked about. We talked about primarily the way um, the word sanctify or sanctification is used in the New Testament. And with almost all of the examples, we saw that the word sanctify or sanctification in the New Testament is almost always passive. Um, where we are the object of the sanctification and God is the one who makes us, um, pass, ma- makes us holy. He is the one who, um, makes us holy by different means. Um, so it's almost all passive with, um, with one exception. And then, um, God or Jesus in that passivity, um, or the Holy Spirit is the subject of, you know, we are, he is the one sanctifying us. And then the other aspect, it's mostly passive and it's mostly past tense, which is a little bit odd. So a lot of the New Testament, especially with Paul, sees our sanctification as having happened or having been tied, so tied to our justification that it's, um, that there's already this sense in which we are holy, we are righteous in Christ. And somehow, um, we know that we'll be made perfect when our bodies are raised at the last day. So the question is, what does it mean then in this life that God is sanctifying us? What does that look like that he's making us holy? And so we talked about the totality of our sin and the totality of our righteousness as seen through our justification, um, as seen through our passive righteousness, what we would call our legal righteousness, what we hear about in Romans 3, that God is both just and the justifier of the ones who put their faith in Jesus Christ. From, because of his death, from the moment of our faith, righteousness and is imputed to us. We use this big word imputation to say God calls us righteous. He sees us, and it's as though he sees the righteousness, the perfect spotless righteousness of his son Jesus Christ, and he calls us righteous, even though in this life we are still um, laboring under sin. And Paul bears witness to this in Romans chapter 7, that there is this um, sin nature that continues on in this life. And we talked last week about it being this totality of sin and this totality of righteousness, um, that simul justus et peccator, which is the Latin phrase um, used by the reformers, by um, Luther especially, is um, because of this overlap in the ages. Because already we've been saved in Jesus Christ from sin, death, um, hell, suffering, all of those things. And yet, um, some of it lingers on. The old age lingers on until Jesus' second return. I, in, um, in one of my... I have a great slide from last week about it, but I don't have it today. Um, but in one of my classes on Mondays, the way I've used it is that it's as though because of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's as though... 
the devil is like a chicken with its head cut off. His head has been cut off, but now for these 2,000 plus years, until Jesus returns, he's running around the barnyard wreaking as much havoc as he can. And we see this in the way there's sin and suffering in the world. We see it even just in the way nature is not doing what it's supposed to do. We could look at the hurricane and look at that as a sign of the way all is not the way it's supposed to be, even now, even though Jesus has come. And yet we can trust that sin, death, hell, suffering really have already been defeated in Christ and that defeat will be consummate, will be fully affected when Jesus returns um, at the consummation of the kingdom. So the kingdom is promised, our righteousness is real and promised and yet it will be fulfilled in that last day. And so because of this overlap of the ages, because of the totality of our sin and the totality of our righteousness, then sin, we can't just see sin as simple deeds. And salvation, um, if we saw sin simply as the deeds we do, the bad deeds we do, then we would think that salvation is just a repair job. Then we just need to weed the garden and everything will be fine. Except that there's this, the real truth of it is that there's this pernicious root um, at the base of the garden. Original sin is not just about the deeds, it's actually about... Um, it's about this, um, I, again, I've called it uh, a spiritual genetic mutation that has happened for all Christians. And so there is this um, old self that lives on, that lingers on, even while the new creation in Christ has already been born in him. And so we're born again, and yet we still struggle with sin. We still are tempted to sin. We still sin um, until Jesus returns or we die, whatever happens first. Um, so again... We're not just looking at a repair job. We're actually looking at, um, we're looking at a total new creation through our salvation, through our justification, through our sanctification, through our glorification, which are perceived as being the three kind of, uh, time factors looked at, um, with our salvation. You could say our justification has happened in the past because of Jesus' death and resurrection through faith. Our sanctification, yes, is ongoing, and yet it's already promised. So in some ways, it is already realized in Jesus Christ. And yet, it will be completely fulfilled upon our glorification, which glorification is our um, resurrection from the dead and the completion, the perfection of our sanctification and our holiness. We'll be raised, and sin will not be raised with us. Sin will stay in the grave. Um, so again, um, I love this quote from one of my favorite theologians that I've talked about last week. God is the one who calls into being that, that which is from that which is not. We see that at creation. We also see that um, in our redemption, that in our redemption, he has brought forth this completely new creature, not from anything that we've brought. We didn't bring the rags of ourself there. And he said, that's good. I can work with that. It was a complete death and resurrection. And that's the language that the New Testament uses for this death and resurrection. And the reason for this totality of language, again, we see it in this idea of union with Christ. How is it that God looks at us and sees perfect righteousness? Well, it's almost as though we could say we are hidden in Christ. We are unified with him by faith. And when God looks at us, all he sees sees is the big greatness of Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness. We're hidden. We're safe um, from God's wrath because we're hidden by faith in Jesus Christ. And the Reformed churches um, following Calvin have such a wonderful way of drawing this out of Scripture and pointing to this reality in Scripture. We talked about this last week in um, 1 Corinthians 1.30, that Jesus Christ himself, became wisdom to us from God, both righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
Again, he is our sanctification. Our sanctification is tied in with him. It's tied in with our justification, and it cannot be separated from our justification. It's not one stage. God saved us by grace through faith, and now we'll take it from here, and we're going to live our Christian life based on our own works and the things that we have to do. No, rather, justification and sanctification are so tied together that we can't separate them out. It's not justification by faith and sanctification by works. Um, and so we looked at last week. We looked at Romans six um, to show that this um, this tie between um, our our justification and our sanctification is so um, combined that we can't separate it out. We couldn't say that our sanctification is apart from Christ. We would never want to say that. So our sanctification is tied in with our justification, and it is total in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so we looked at this last week. Um, no longer are we slaves to sin, um, but now we're slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification because of what Christ has done for us. Um, so again, I'm going to pause right there and we'll talk some more about um, about what this means now. What is this growth? What does it look like? Um, what does growth look like? And what do we do as a result of this growth, as a result of what has been done for us in Jesus Christ? I'm going to pause and take a breath. Feel free to um, uh, ask questions or um, or criticisms. So one thing that you had talked about last week yeah. and that it came up here is there's sanctification, salvation, and then there was, in, in the quote you had in the slide before this, it said redemption as a third thing. Yeah. Is that a separate thing from those, or is that just another way of saying the same sort of thing? Yeah, thank you. It's um, They're distinct in a certain way. Redemption is all-encompassing, and we would say that our full redemption doesn't happen until the last day when all creation is fully restored, and yet our redemption is in Jesus Christ. And so you can say, again, it's almost as though... I like to think of it as if God, because of his eternal nature, he sees the last 2,000 years of human history as like a blip on the radar screen. For him, it is all one event tied together. Even though for us limited, non-eternal beings, we're laboring (laughs) under the overlap between the old age of sin and suffering and death and the new age of righteousness and um, and holiness and perfection and beauty, the beauty of all creation restored. We have glimmers of that as Christians. The rest of the world doesn't maybe only gets to see that through us or maybe has a dim hope, but apart from Christ, there's no hope of that. And so the best way to look up at it is this overlap in the ages. And I, I, again, because of the Lord's eternal nature, I perceive that he sort of sees it all as one. And so sometimes in the language, the language in the New Testament ends up overlapping a little bit. And so he'll say things through Paul like that, uh, where it's um, Jesus is righteousness and sanctification and redemption all together. He brings us all of those things that are related but are not exactly synonymous. Um, although often he'll put righteousness and sanctification as parallel ideas um, or synonymous ideas because of righteous, righteousness being so associated with holiness. If you think of that moral perfection, he often will associate righteousness and sanctification. And yet for Paul, it's so clear that righteousness is given to us as a complete and total gift, an unearned gift. That's what we have through faith in Jesus Christ that brings about, our, that's our salvation, is that God sees us and calls us righteous because of Jesus' death on our behalf and because of his perfectly lived life. And that happens from the moment of faith. And then the outworking of that, the way um, our old self continues to live on um, will color 
um, the way that perfect righteousness um, plays out and is seen in the world by other people. And so you could say in some ways, some people will see sanctification, and a lot of theologians will call our sanctification, they'll consider it a kind of progressive move. This is not what I'm saying, but this is what other people were saying, is that they'll see it as a progressive move from sinfulness to holiness and perfect righteousness. And yet what the New Testament says is that that, that righteousness is already there through faith in Jesus Christ. There's that totality and a logic that actually defies human logic. We say, well, how can I get from point A to point B? It's only in progression. And that's not what the New Testament writers are saying. Paul always, when he's talking about his moral imperatives, when he's telling the Colossians or the Ephesians or the Galatians what to do, he doesn't, not so much the Galatians, when he's telling them what, oh no, Galatians, when he's telling them what to do, he's saying, he uses words like walk, this way, walk in the road that's already been paved for you by Jesus Christ. Follow him. And essentially, it's a very passive following of him. Yes, it's putting off sin and lifestyle that accompanies sinfulness and putting on the righteousness of Christ. But the image is of something that's already been done for us. The righteousness in Jesus Christ is already ours through faith. It is our inheritance. And so when he talks about these moral imperatives, rather than just saying, do this, he knows that just saying, do this, will actually create um, rebellion in the old creature that lingers on. And so rather than saying, just do this, he's speaking to the new creature and he's using a because therefore language. We talked about this last week. Rather than if you do this, then God will do this. He's not saying, he never says in the, imper- um, in the imperatives, in his moral imperatives, in his letters, Paul never says, if you do this, then God will do that. Because that has that language is already gone in salvation. We are already saved in Jesus Christ. Because we have been saved, he'll say, therefore, put on righteousness. You are already righteous. Now walk in it. Put it on. Um, almost like the old clothes, the old self is in the dirty laundry hamper. Take off the old self and put on the new clothes that have already been bought for you in Jesus Christ that are ironed and perfect and sitting right there you simply put off the old self and put on so while there is some notion of the effort in that is far different than um than the um do 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 strive 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 is that is that helpful is that the answer okay if that's her yeah chris the kids in in the classes because we get a lot of especially fourth grade Mm -hmm. really start to talk about yeah Sure. Right, you know, salvation. Yeah. And um, the the interesting thing is, you you know, you tell them it's not works. You know, it's mm-hmm. just faith, faith in Christ. So yeah. Inevitably, at some point, it comes up. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I do. And I, the way I explain it to them is like I say, it doesn't. But if you have accepted Jesus and you actually believe, and you believe in, in these, you know, justification. Yeah. Uh, that that he is saved for us, and you take that into your heart, then that has, then that will transform. Yeah, it will. And so it is a measure. The outward right. works that you do, and your interactions with others, it is a measure because love is transforming. Right. And so if you have, so you're right. Any you know the, the humanity in us, the failures in us, whether we do it or not, we're still going to have you know our sinful moments when we come right. Yeah. Ask forgiveness, but you yeah. will know through the way you see others, the way your outlook, yeah. how your heart has changed. That's absolutely right. You know, I guess that yeah. that be kind of the 
part of the, like the path of the sanctification. Well, let's keep talking about this because this what what about growth? Then we want to say that there's growth. We want to see that there's growth. Although I will say, I used to believe that there was a lot of growth in that I, in, for Christians, and I used to look up to octogenarians, you know, people in their 80s who were Christians who'd been Christians for a long time. And then I became a pastor, and I got to spend a lot more time with people in their 80s. <laughs> and I I love there's a beauty to the holiness, a beauty to this sense of having followed the Lord for 50 or 60 plus years or 70 years, however many years that that person has walked with the Lord. And yet I still see in these beloved octogenarians, some that I know really well at this point, I still see unforgiveness or I'll still see an untamed tongue. We say of one person, uh, one older person in my family that his um, filter is now off. So all of the things that he's been thinking, now he's saying. And you're like, oh, wow, we, we, we know you're holy in Christ, and yet we're hearing this come out of your mouth, and that's very abrupt. And there's a lot of, the, all of the filters are off in some ways. And so if we were to say, well, we're progressing, or we are trying to progress, then we, the danger with that language, it's not that there isn't growth. We're not denying growth. But what we're saying is we have to use the right language to speak to us old and new creatures. Because the old creature will hear, I've got a, you know, there's this growth that's possible and they'll think, great, I'm going to start to climb this ladder. I've got my program for holiness. I'm going to work on this. And then there will be some kind of carrot. There will be some kind of benefit from the Lord. And that's why we get so angry when our prayers aren't answered. Because we think, God, I've been obeying you. I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible. I've been filling the blank. I left these things and I've done these things for you. Why haven't you caused my depression to go away? Or why isn't my child following the Lord? Or why do I have this horrible illness? Why won't you heal me from this? We get angry because we believe that by our good works in this life as Christians, somehow we can buy a certain thing. It's that if-then mentality with God. We think that then, and that if-then mentality is something that the old creature is so prone to take on that we want to avoid that language, and Paul avoids that language so as to not trigger that sense of self-importance and that pride of the old creature. Um, So it's a hard, that's why this class is hard. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to keep. So let's keep going. I'm going to say... um, Continuing onward, um, some people, again, talking about growth, some people want to say, both theologians and pastors and well-meaning Christians, want to say um, that um, that a growth, any kind of growth, growth in holiness, growth in grace, growth in sanctification, would happen through our action by means, they call it the act of righteousness of the Christian. And so um, this is what it looks like when people think that they're in charge. When we think that we're in charge, then either there will be a positive thing or that we're um, trying to take on or a negative thing that we're trying to get rid of. So it could be an approach to moral behavior where we'll... Um, uh, uh, again, take off. We'll remove the negative through effort, through gimmicks, through group, group accountability, or through even, I hate to say it, but self-important prayer. God, I've been this, I've been this, and this, and this. Remember the Pharisee praying, God, I've done all these wonderful things. Now what are you going to do for me? Hear that if-then language in prayer to God. Very often we'll take that on, unlike the humble sinner who said, I haven't been. I haven't been any of these things. I don't deserve anything, but you love me. And and pleading upon the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it could be, we hear about it in very well-meaning Christian circles. Five ways to curb your tongues. Or um, there was a man in seminary that I have had a very fleeting 
crush on who had these weird rubber bands around his wrists. And I was not aware of what this was from. And someone in my, in deeper Christian circles, someone who had grown up in more, um, more entrenched, uh, I grew up as a Christian, but, um, she knew about what that was for. And she said, Oh, I don't know if you want to date him because that's, if he has a lustful thought, he can pull the rubber band and snap his wrist. And then that way, the lustful thought, that will be negative reinforcement for the lustful thought and he won't still have it. And I thought, like, not because of the sin that might have been there, but because of the means of dealing with the sin, we're not going to eradicate the sin from his life. They were just going to prevent any kind of outward manifestation of the sin, which is good, which is not terrible, but um, it wasn't a reliance upon the grace of God. It was uh, self self uh, 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 technique that was taken on by himself to be able to curb sinful desire. So again, um, these are unhelpful ways to approach moral behavior. It could be also a positive approach to embarking on self-designated spiritual disciplines. Don't get me wrong, spiritual disciplines are good. We want to read our Bibles. We want to go to church. We want to pray daily. We want to be in communion with other Christians and in fellowship. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But if we take them these things on as a program of perceived positives, probably in our mind to outweigh the negatives, then um, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Um, we do this with New Year's resolutions. I'm going to do this, and then this will happen in my life. I'm going to finally be on that diet and stay on that diet, and then I'm going to lose weight. What happens when you don't lose weight after being on the diet? You give it up, right? And you say, well, forget that. Um, or The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is a good book and probably brings some good results, but doesn't bring the lasting change from the heart that characterizes true holiness and true sanctification. No. So looking at the justified life, um, this walk, walking um, as the New Testament and Old Testament talk about it, walking this way, following Jesus Christ in this life, we would call it um, sanctification. We would call it the justified life. And this ver- these verses were really important to me in my teens after having become a Christian. Um, I think I'd memorized these at summer camp. And so they were so powerful. I just knew them and I felt like this was what it meant to be a Christian. I have been crucified with Christ is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Again, I I understood at age 14, I understood I had been crucified to Christ to mean extreme self-denial, avoiding all manner of unrighteous deeds, and the disobedience to God and to my parents that were suddenly becoming available as a teenager. But um, if I were, as I realized this, I began, as I embarked on this program of self-imposed improvement, of self-imposed denial, I discovered um, that my life was turning into a constant anxious game of whack-a-mole. Sin, you might hit down sin in one place and then it pops up in another and you're going to try to get it yourself and you're in this constantly um, frenetic um, way of trying to improve your life so that your sin doesn't show. And that's ultimately the bottom line. We take on this program of self-improval. Why? So that our sin doesn't show, so that we appear to be the moral, upright Christian that everyone thinks that we are or that we ought to be. And that's the problem with this life. There's um, The weeds creep back in. The mole keeps coming up in a different hole. Um, I love this, this fear of our sin showing. I think about it. I had an older brother 
my older brother would um, tease us girls mercilessly. And I remember him saying, before I knew what this word meant, oh, your epidermis is showing. And I didn't know what my <coughs> epidermis was. And then my older sister graciously said, it's your skin. It's okay. It's always showing. Um, but I have this same fear as a Christian. Do you fear that your sin will show to other people? They'll find out and they'll know there's this deadly fear. And that fear is from the old creature because it's a fear of our, of what are they going to think of me? Um, and it's okay. It's okay that we have that fear. We just have to recognize that that's a fear of the old creature that wants to construct any kind of barrier, any kind of self-improvement program, any kind of outer construction of righteousness and our own doing that will prevent people from seeing the real us inside the real old creature that's lingering on even while the new creature is definitely there um, embarking on a program of self-imposed improvement gives the illusion of being in control and therefore it ends up mostly cultivating pride especially if we have results but when we don't have results or we don't have perfect results which we don't um, Again, we might have better behavior, but true holiness starts on the inside. When we don't have those results, um, our insides don't match our outsides. We become like those hypocrites that um, Jesus condemns for being whitewashed tombs. The outside looks really good, but inside it's all darkness and sin um, or bad thoughts. Um, so again, the bottom line, um, it also leads to that resentment of God that I mentioned in prayer. I've, I've been good. Why do I have cancer? That's the bottom line resentment. I've done this, God. Why haven't you done that? Um, so again, this self-imposed um, improvement program leads to self-importance, pride, anxiety, resentment of God, and despair. And it's downright silly. With this verse, in, in more in my 20s, <laughs> I began to realize with this verse, it's actually silly to try to crucify our old self. I would say that trying to crucify our old self is like trying to commit, please forgive this very graphic image, it's like trying to commit suicide by holding our own breath. Did you ever hold your own breath as a kid and you wondered, oh no, is, am I going to die by, if I do this? And none of us were ever able to do that, right? You might have spent a few um, you know, hours in the back of the, of the lawn with friends in the neighborhood trying to see how long you could hold your breath. You could never hold your breath. Maybe you could pass out, but you wouldn't die because you'd pass out and you'd start breathing again. That is like trying to crucify the flesh. We are not in charge of our own righteousness or our own progression in holiness. Um, I would love to be in charge. I would love to stop being late. I would love to stop swearing. I would love to stop gossiping. I would love to stop. You can fill in the blank if you know me. You probably can. I'd love to stop that. But it is God's agenda, and God might rather decide to work on my pride or my lack of faith or the sins that he sees that I'm too blind to. So again, if we are, in, if we were actually in charge of our own sanctification or our growth in holiness, um, then the problem with that, once again, I've already said some problems with that, but the biggest problem with that is that if we think we're in charge, if it's up to us, then we work ourselves out of needing grace. If grace is only used to get by with a little boost from God so that we can then obey him and do these good works, then we don't need grace anymore because we've started to do the good works and we're therefore righteous in our own strength. But the truth from scripture is that we never graduate from needing God's grace. And Ephesians 2 shows this so beautifully. I'm going to read all of these 10 verses. Or I'm going to ask, I'm going to stop talking if someone else wants to read them. Can anybody see it well enough to read? Um, uh, yeah, why don't, yeah, I'll scooch back. 
right. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince <coughs> of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's so beautiful. It's one of the best passages. I mean, you could say that about so many passages. This is the best passage. This is so, it's so wonderful because we see the totality of our salvation, right? We once walked in this way and we're by nature children of wrath. That's the old Deborah, the old person, like all the rest of mankind. But God, but God is like the biggest eraser. God is rich in his mercy. And because of his love, even though we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our works, we would even say, he has made us alive together with Christ to hear that union with Christ that we talked about it's by faith in him by being hidden in him by grace you have been saved there's this past tense to our salvation by grace we have been saved in the past tense and that is our justification and then he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus because of his death and resurrection and ascension there is this advocate for us right there at the right hand of the father there's a human being in heaven for the first time ever dwelling there without being destroyed by the holiness of God because he is God and because he is perfectly holy and he paves the way for us. We too will one day reside around the throne of God without being um, crushed by his wrath because we will be um, so perfectly holy that we will be able to be there for all the coming ages. That eternity is ours. And so he talks about the past grace justified by faith. Then he talks about this future grace in verse 7. In the coming ages, I love the so that. The so that is why, why does God do this? Well, God does this. Why? Because he wants to show us grace for all the rest of eternity. He wants us to be there with him so that he can lavish his grace upon us. I like to think of this as the most incredible wooing. Often, um, once you're married, you kind of think, okay, we've already got each other. This, the, you know, we don't need to keep doing nice things for each other. And that's just not true. A marriage works based on that immeasurable um, grace that we continue to extend to each other day by day. God has saved us so that for all eternity, he can lavish us with his kindness and love. And I can't even imagine what that will look like. We'll still need grace in the future, even when we're perfected in holiness. And so, if we didn't get it before in these previous verses, he's reiterating in verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. That's past and future. And now he's going to say how this relates to our present life as Christians. For we are his workmanship. We've already been created. We're already his handiwork. And we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
But those good works are things that God prepares for us to walk in. I love that language which we use in our post-communion prayer. It's as though God has already laid out the path. The good works that he's going to do in us and through us are things that he has already generated. Just like the clothing of righteousness. We just put it on. We just walk in it. It's a very passive understanding of our sanctification. Rather than us trying, trying, trying. Um, it shows that we do not have the ability to do good without God's gracious gift Um, without God's work in us. So again, we're not in charge of any growth in holiness or sanctification, but rather God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sanctification is not by works, but by faith. And growth is growth in grace. I love Gerhard Forde talks about growth in grace, which is being captivated more and more by the totality, the unconditionality of the grace of God. By his grace, God is the one who kills our old self and raises us to new life in Christ. Again, looking back at Galatians 2, um, in context, reveals that God God is the actor. God is the one um, who is the subject of the sentence, and we are the passive um, object. We simply live by faith. Um, uh, I live the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. Um, I don't live it based on the things that I do, but I live it based on what he's done for me. Again, this is not to say that God doesn't change us or free us from the power of sin. Um, God does. By his mercy, we have been freed. Again, here's the past tense, from the penalties of sin. We have, in the future, we will be freed from the presence of sin. And in the present, we are being freed by his grace and mercy from the power of sin. But when we see this change, it is usually only by looking back with new eyes on how we used to be. We cannot deny that the change is always beyond ourselves. The change that we see in ourselves is a miracle of God's own doing. And I love how gracious God is. He's so gracious to us that he won't allow us to take credit for it. And so for the octogenarian who's a Christian, when they say, um, when they, they never seem to, when they do um, mention that there is some change, you should have seen how I used to have been, they don't take credit for it. And that's one of the gracious things about it, that God um, allows us to see, even especially in hindsight, that it's always his work in us and not our work on our own. Well, I'm just now getting to four points as the bells are ringing about growth and grace. But four points, and I'll pick these up next week and flesh them out a little bit more. If Christ is our sanctification, then union with him, it, uh, that sentence doesn't make sense, but our union with him is affected through our faith, through faith. And faith is nourished. It's given by God, but it's nourished through time in the word, through fellowship with the church, through the sacraments, and through God's work, through the circumstances of our lives that are beyond our control, that strengthen and sharpen our faith, essentially through suffering. And we'll talk about suffering the last week. The second point, the Holy Spirit is God's gracious gift for effecting union with Christ and for our renewal as his agent of change in our lives. I love thinking about the Holy Spirit as um, almost like liquid grace. We don't deserve to be vessels of the Holy Spirit. We don't deserve the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, In Luke, um, when Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, Luke makes it very clear that one of the things we're to ask for is the gift of the Holy Spirit, and God will graciously give us that gift. Um, And then we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And then also number three, this is one of my favorite points from this theologian, is that it is not so much that we are progressing towards a particular goal of growth or holiness, but rather that that goal is approaching us. Every hour, every moment of this life, our perfect holiness, our our death, 
and our resurrection approaches us. The return of Jesus is gradually getting closer to us. And that is a good thing. And that's something that we don't even have to do ourselves. God is bringing um, the righteousness of Christ. He already has brought it to us. And that sanctification is approaching us as time goes on by God's grace. And then finally, growth in grace involves receiving forgiveness again and again and again. We know God's grace as we know our need for his grace. Um, And we'll talk about that a lot next week. Let me close this in prayer, and you can feel free to stay behind and ask a question. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the grace that you have lavished upon us through your death and your resurrection. And thank you for the grace that um, you will lavish upon us for all of all the ages to come throughout all eternity. You desire to lavish that grace upon us. And even so, now in this life, would you cause us to grow in grace, to grow in the sense of our need for you, to grow even in the awareness of our sin? Um, We want to see it, Lord. We don't want to see it, but we do want to see it so that we might see your power and your mercy day by day. And so we thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. And we ask, Lord, that your mercy would be towards us this morning again as we go forth um, with this word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.